Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. Amen. All right, if you would remain standing with me today as we read God's Word, our passage today. It's going to be from Genesis 1. Imagine that. We just started our Genesis series. So if you would, flip open to Genesis 1. We're going to be in verses 26 and 27 today. Should be on page 1. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Have you ever had one of those moments that you were really proud of where you had gotten ahead of a trend? Well, I will never forget that moment for me. It was probably close to 10 years ago. I was sitting in Black Dog Coffee House, which was kind of this nice place to go and have a study session. And see, Black Dog, if you're not familiar with it, I think it still has a little bit of this reputation, but... It was the premier hipster hangout of my little pocket of town called Lenexa. All the hipsters went there. They were genuinely ironic, not like ironic for fun. Um, And they were always on the bleeding edge of music. So I was sitting there and I heard it. If you're familiar with electronic music, maybe you recognize this tune, but probably not many do. So the barista walked by and I asked them, hey, who, what artist is this? She uh, nonchalantly went back with her shaved head and her bull nose ring that she had and all of her tattoos. And she checked her iPod because that was a thing. And she came back and she goes, uh, I don't know, it's this new guy, Skrillex, I guess. And finally it had happened. I had to maintain my composure because you can't lose your cool around the hipsters or you've lost already. If you're unfamiliar with this artist, he was kind of the one who brought this new style of music into the mainstream called dubstep. And here's what was great. I had been listening to him for weeks. I finally beat the hipsters. It was a huge deal for me. And that moment for me felt a lot like dubsteps, because see, dubstep, it has this particular moment in every song, if you're not familiar with it. There's this building tension as it builds and builds. These drums build, and these melodies, they continue, and they get more and more complex, and it all builds into this crescendo when it finally happens, the drop. Boom! Electronic noises everywhere, chopped vocals, synthesizers, And the drums cut to halftime just so that all of it can swim together. It is a cacophony of wonderful musical delight if you're into EDM. And I know some people aren't. 
Stephen. <laughs> but I had finally beat them. And this was huge. The thing about dubstep is what makes this moment so great is the anticipation of the moment. To quote another famous song from today and a character named Aaron Burr, you have to wait for it. Here in our passage today, this is what we see. It's one of those moments where everything stops. If the poetic narrative we see here in Genesis 1 is a song, then we have build, we've been building and building and building, and here is the drop. The pace slows down, and God is introducing something in creation that is completely different. And he says... Let us make man in our own image. Something truly incredible is happening here in creation. God, he's not just creating anymore, but rather he's injecting something special and true about himself, something unique that represents who he is into the mix. The Imago Dei is what we call it. The very image of God in creation now through man. What an incredible account this is. But what, what does that even mean for us today? What is the significance of the Imago Dei that we see here, this image of God? If we look at our passage today in light of what comes before it and what comes after, then I think we see this key idea emerge. And if you're a note taker, this is your key idea to take today. The image of God reveals the creator king. The image of God reveals the creator king. So let's pray. God, I pray today as we examine your word, as we try to understand this idea that you've made us in your image, God, that we would see ourselves as rightly dignified, as image bearers of this divine creator who we worship today. God, I pray that we would see ourselves humbly in your presence, as your image bearers, as that divine creator, we would see ourselves humbly. God, I pray that you would teach us to do our duty in creation, um, to creation, and, and with each other in light of this beautiful truth that we are made to be like you. We are so thankful for your love and your sacrifice, God, we are thankful for your word that you do reveal yourself to us in it. Help us to hold truth, truthfully to it today. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, we have been in this passage for a few weeks now. Um, last week, Cody actually dug through some of the structure. So I'm not gonna go really intensively into that structure, but I do wanna highlight just a few key points for us today as sort of a refresher. And for those of you who may not have been here last week to give you a, a guideline for where we're going today. See, our text, it's couched right in the middle of God's creative work here in Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is this prologue to all of the rest of the book of Genesis. And Genesis is this prologue to all the rest of the Bible. It's this foundational piece that tells us these massive truths about God and his work and his creation. As I said before, it's part of this poetic narrative. You'll notice a lot of, this, a lot of these uh, verses, they have almost like a musical feel to them. They have this rhythm and they have this cadence. 
It's meant to convey truth, but in a creative way. It has all the beauty of something like a song, but it's meant to convey the truths of God's creative work. And so here are the few key things that we want to refresh ourselves on today. In verses one through two of Genesis one, we see that God is miraculously creating something out of nothing. All of creation comes from him, nowhere else. He didn't need anything. He freely chose to create something out of nothing. And then from verses three all the way up through 25, that takes us to our verses today, God is creating specific things in creation. We have the first five days of creation, in fact. And we see these repeated phrases, and God said, let there be, and it was, let it bring forth, and then it did. God's creation was reactive to him. It was obedient to him. What he said was what it did. And we see this repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good. But I want you to look carefully again with me at verse 26 and what is happening here. Up until now, in our translation, you see, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Here in verse 26, our translators chose to highlight the gravity of this passage. Then God said. See, we're right in the middle of this day of creation. There are these two creation acts, and we've seen this before, but this creation that God's about to do is something where we need to take pause and look at what he is doing. God said something different here, too. He didn't say, let it be. He didn't say, let it bring forth. He said, let us make. See, God was uniquely active in the creation of man. And this is actually confirmed later on in Genesis 2 when we get there. We get a closer look at what God is doing and how he does that. And it's for good reason. He says, I, the creator of all things, I'm about to do something so totally different. I'm going to take my time with this one. I'm going to do something special here. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. We're not just going to speak this one in. See, God, we need to understand he didn't actually need us, but out of his own free will and pleasure, he desired to create something like himself. He wanted something in his creation that was like him. How about that for a drop, right? And so we get to the end of this as we read along I'm going to dip into the rest of the passage here. He continues in verse 28. And man, this wind is great. 28 through 31, he says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, That is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
Listen to this. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And so we finally finished this sixth day. The drop has finally finished. One-fifth of the verses of this entire chapter are dedicated to the creation of man and everything that surrounds that. One-fifth of the whole chapter. Nothing else gets that. Here we see that man is also given this unique role and this unique blessing in creation to subdue the earth and to care for it. What is God's verdict now that man is finally in creation? Do you remember? Up until now, he said, well, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. And what happens now that something like him is in creation? That's very good. That's very good. Isn't that wildly significant? It should be. See, I, I've recently, I've gotten into looking at things through a telescope. Some of you know this. I've been dying, you can ask my wife, to get into this wildly expensive hobby called astrophotography. And in this hobby, you set up these monster telescopes in your backyard that you either purchase for a large sum of money or you can build also for a large sum of money. It doesn't really cut anything off there. You just get a bigger one. And then you set it up and you point cameras through the telescope and you take pictures of things in the sky. And when I say this, you're probably thinking of Orion and all of these different constellations, maybe a planet or two, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about deep sky images of nebulas and galaxies that you can't even see with the naked eye. It's incredible. So we have this cheap telescope, because I can't afford this hobby, and it can't really produce any good details. You can't really get any good color from any planets or anything like that. But the first time that I looked through this dinky telescope and I saw Jupiter, I didn't know what to expect. I had never done that before. But I looked through there and I didn't just see Jupiter, but I saw these four moons too. And here it was at that moment, live in real life, not pictures, I was seeing another planet millions and millions of miles away that had these four moons. And I was just taken aback. The God of the universe, the one who created Jupiter and all of these moons, four of which I could see then and there, all of these numerous galaxies and these beautiful pictures that people have been taking of real things that he created. This God looked at all of that and said, that's good. But when God made us, he said, that's very good. Don't miss that. That's huge. But there is even more evidence here, church, that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. There's even more evidence here that ties us to the rest of the book of Genesis as well. You may remember that in Genesis, one of the key things that we see is that God is a covenant-making God. He's a God who makes promises with his people, and he's a promise-keeping God. And we see these common elements of what that covenant relationship looks like. We talked about it in our first week. We see God's people, we see God's place, 
and God's rule. And those are characteristics that define these covenants. And we see when God makes man, he makes them both male and female, and he blesses them, this special blessing. And that's God's people that we see here. And then he gives them the earth. There is this place that God has given them, God's place. And he gave it to them to rule over, not as some gift that we just abuse, but it was this job that God gave them. That's God's rule. See, we see here this formula that is common to covenants of that time and of covenant language. We have to understand, too, when we read Scripture, it's couched in the time and place and context that it was written to. And in the time and place and context of the ancient Near East, this was a common formula as well. We see these covenants that are made between these great kings and these lesser kings. The great king is known as a suzerain, and he would make a deal with these lesser kings of the area called vassals. And these covenants, they would set the boundaries and the dictates of what that relationship was to be like, who served who and how they did it, what land they had and what was their job. And this is what we see here. We see the great king of the universe gave man these lesser kings, the earth to rule as representatives of him, representatives to all creation, and they're to do that in perfect obedience. And here is the real crux, church, of what it means that man is made in the image of God. Man was made to represent God as faithful rulers in his creation. Our likeness to God and our role as representatives in creation, that's not an optional thing for us. That's not an optional thing for anyone. That is ingrained deeply into our very nature of who we are. And that's true of every human being. We all have that responsibility. And some might think that it sounds selfish to think that we are made in the image of God, that we are this pinnacle of God's creation, that we are somehow better than all of the rest of creation or God has given us some extra role or duty here, that we're simply stardust or an accident is what people say. I've heard so many times people say how selfish it is to think that somehow man is special in all of the universe. And even worse, I've seen people who claim to believe God's word who shake their heads in agreement with that. That's not what it says in the Bible. That's not what it says. That's not what God says about mankind. It's not selfish when the creator of the universe gives you that distinction. We need to have a little bit of faith and take God at his word. We don't need to self-deprecate and swerve away from hitting a squirrel and hit the kid on the side of the road. Uh, if, if you chose the squirrel over the kid, you made the right choice. That is to save the child. Let me be clear what I'm saying here. You've understood in that moment something true about mankind. 
And we all know that too, don't we? Deep in our hearts. And I remember the gravity of the moment when I really understood just how different and precious human life is. See, when Dom was pregnant with our oldest son, Alistair, he was our first child. And I remember being in that sonogram room and the person doing the sonogram said, okay, here's the heartbeat. And for me, the world slowed down when, that, when I saw that little static light just flickering there. And with great anticipation, that sound finally hit my ears. Because baby's heartbeats are real fast. <laughs> that was a drop that I will never forget. See, I broke down into tears. And I knew that my son had been alive the whole time. But until I actually saw it, until I really saw it, I saw that heartbeat. I felt these things well up in myself. And I thought, you go, buddy. And that is my child. I know that all you can do right now is just beat your little heart. That is your one job and you've got to do it. You have to make it. You have to come out here and you've got to meet your dad. See what was unique about that moment, church, that he was like me. He was like me in a way that I had never understood before. We recognize that deep within our souls, how precious that human life is. We recognize the gravity of that life is lost. Just like Alistair would one day reflect who I am, and he does if you look at him, and I reflect who my father is, and I do if you look at him, so mankind reflects their creator, the king. We are like him in our very nature. We are also to be like him in how we represent him in his creation. See, the image of God reveals the creator king who made us. So what do we do with that? What can we learn from all of these Truths, this profound truth that God made us in his image, that we have this role and this duty to each other and to creation. Well, there are a few implications and then there's a few applications. One of the implications is this. Every man is created in the image of God. It doesn't matter about gender here. When I say man, I'm talking of all mankind. Notice in verse 27 that their gender does not matter. He creates them male and female. Whether male or female, people are created in the image of God. That doesn't change anything. In addition to that, people's race does not matter. Did you know that both genetic science and the Bible actually agree here? Well, quite a bit. Yeah, we have all of these different kinds of cultures. We have different ethnicities. We have all these different aspects of what it looks like to look different. And every one of those things is a reflection of the beauty of the creativity of God, that we can be so different and diverse. All of those cultures have sin in them as well. But the biblical account of man and science here too agree, we're all the same thing. 
Don't let anyone tell you different. We are all one human race. That is just what's true. There's also no age limit on how much someone is made in the image of God. The Bible is clear that from the moment of conception, we are knit together by God in our mother's womb all the way till death. There's no difference between how much we are in the image of God. It's part of who we are. It doesn't matter what your mental state is either. I think this is one of the most beautiful aspects about the image of God. It affirms the full humanity of every human being. You have to understand that this is actually unique. This is unique to other worldviews. There are other worldviews that would say otherwise. But it doesn't matter if you have depression or bipolar. It doesn't matter if you're on the autism spectrum, if you have Down syndrome or anything else. In some places, frankly, they'd probably just kill you before you were born. And that's sad. But the Bible says no. The Bible says that every person at every age is made in the image of God. Every man is created in the image of God. Another implication. Every man is above creation. We miss this sometimes too, but what what does that mean? Well, in one sense, it's sort of a value statement. There's no other creature or cause that we encounter that is worth more than protecting human life. That means sometimes there are certain instances where in order to protect human life, you also take it, but that's rare and we should not seek that out. The key here is, is that human life is the most precious thing in all of creation. Beyond all the stars and all the all of the galaxies in the universe, human life is the most precious thing in all of creation to us. But that's not just a statement of the value of human life either. That is also a statement about that rule and that role that we talked about. Man is above the rest of creation. It's our intended duty and God-given role to actually rule over the earth. And that's kind of difficult for us. So I want to talk about what that doesn't mean and then I want to talk about what that does mean. It's, it's not about abusing resources or animals or anything like that. If you think that this is some divine decree for us to just use up everything and kill everything in sight, then we've got it wrong. It's not about disconnecting from culture either, where we have some who want to utilize everything for their own gain. We have some who want to just disconnect from everything. We want to disconnect from the world completely and just run away. But that's not ruling, is it? That's not living up to our role. That's running away. It is about utilizing and cultivating the world as good stewards. It's not ours. It's God's. We're just to care for it and to rule it. Look back at that job that God gave them in verse 28. They were to go forth and into the earth and they were to fill it, not run away. They were to multiply and be fruitful in their labors. It's also about engaging and redeeming the culture. The opposite of running our role above creation is meant to have fruitful labor in creation. This also includes building culture and community that rightly reflects 
the image of God in the way that we rule over the earth. So another implication. Every man has the same responsibility. We talked about this a little bit. No one is exempt from this. Every man was made to represent God in creation, to reflect his glory. And this only happens when his image is displayed perfectly. So we're in trouble here. That's a tall order, right? Display the image of God perfectly. It's impossible, in fact. But it doesn't change the truth of that. I want you to hear that. It doesn't change the truth just because it's impossible for us to do that we are to do it. In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter calls us to perfection when he quotes the many passages in Leviticus where God says, be holy as I am holy. And God is perfect. But then in James 2, it says that if we break even one of God's commandments, then we're guilty of breaking them all. See, we're, we're meant to do this perfectly, and we don't. But there is hope. I don't want to give it away yet, though. We'll get to that later. Finally, our final implication here is that every man is beneath God. And we have to understand this. We need to remember that the covenant relationship that God set up with us in this passage today as mankind, it has a hierarchy. God is the great king, king with a capital K, right? He rules over all of us and all of his creation. But man, even though we are above creation, we are beneath God. We get this wrong. We are kings with a lowercase k. We report to the king over all creation. So if you've missed those implications and you're writing them down, we've got these four from the text. Every man is created in the image of God. Every man is above creation. Every man has the same responsibility. And every man is also beneath God. We have to get that order right. But these implications, they lead us to our applications. We have to ask, okay, these things are true, but what do we do with that today? What does that even look like in my life today? This is a great truth, but how do we apply it? Our first application today, we have to see every man with the dignity that is demanded by the image of God. It's not a choice. Everyone is made in the image of God. They deserve that dignity. And this is a very real and present problem for us in our world today, isn't it? It's easy to think that because someone is different for any reason, that they somehow have less dignity than us, that the image of God is somehow less of a deal for them. But we've already established from the text here today that that's not true. All mankind shares this. You have men and women who view each other as objects for gratification. Men who view women as inferior because of some indoctrination they probably received growing up. You have feminists who think that all men are inherently toxic. All of these things devalue the truth that both male and female are made in the image of God and they have inherent dignity in that. 
How about race? See, this is the term that we have decided culturally to describe what we talked earlier about as ethnicity. We can disagree to what degree it is, how it manifests itself, whether it's individual or corporate. We can go on and on and on on this debate, but every one of us knows what real ethnic hatred looks like. We've all seen it in our lives. We need to be honest about this, church. Right here and right now, this is at a boiling point in our culture today. Here's the thing. I think a lot of us, most of us, on some level, we're getting something wrong about it. Because it is a sin to refuse to see the dignity of another person because of the color of their skin, their hair, their eyes, or whatever. If that's you today, I pray and I beg you to repent of that. Racism is real, but it's also just like any other sin. It's just like any other idol in our hearts. If we see it, we need to root it out. And we can kill it by the power of the gospel and God's work in our lives. We can be free of it. But I think today for us, race goes hand in hand with this other issue that I see. We have to see the image of God in those with other opinions and worldviews. This might be even more important for us today because I think it drives the others. We cannot just dismiss each other as something less than human just because we don't see eye to eye. Important in an election year, right? See, race, it's not this single-sided issue. It's this two-sided issue for us. I don't think you can prove biblically that everyone is racist. Uh, You can't prove biblically that only certain people can be and others can't even though there are lots of people who believe that today. But this goes into our piece today about worldviews and opinions. False accusations of those kinds are also sinful. To be perfectly honest, in our current culture, that's actually often based on race too. Now, I know that this is a very touchy subject for all of us. And if I'm being honest, it is touchy for me too. This was a hard sermon to write. But the beauty of God's word is that it is timeless in both its power and its application. And it's often timely too. Think about this, church. In the culture that we live in today, we happen to be talking about the image of God. The most important theological topic for us outside of the gospel itself to address this issue. How do we get along with each other? It's the image of God. Maybe I can illustrate what this worldview issue looks like in this way. I've recently been reading American Sniper, listening to it rather, which is a biography by the late veteran Chris Kyle. I like biographies, but this one was really tough for me to read. Here's why. When someone becomes hardened like a soldier, or sometimes they become street hardened like a cop, 
There seems to be this thing that we can do, and we're seeing this more and more in our everyday lives, where we can disconnect the humanity of a situation. I can't imagine how difficult it is in those situations specifically. But I've heard this kind of language that I saw in this book, heard in this book before. Offhanded jokes about how you don't need to feel bad because we were killing Muslims. We weren't killing people. Man, that hurts. Or like when someone's convicted of some heinous crime and they get locked up like the animal they are. We've heard it, haven't we? Maybe we've said it. Regardless of someone's worldview, someone's religion, what someone has done, or what someone has said about you, they still bear the image of God. Believing something different in your heart is sin. Get that right. A lot of us want to hear this and we go, and that's not me on any of those accounts. Let me ask you a couple diagnostic questions. First off, what about in your heart? Maybe you didn't say it outside, but what about in that heart? Did you dismiss someone because they look different? Did you dismiss someone or assume something about them because of what they believe? Whether they're a cop, they're married to one, who their family is, where they live. Did you have anger in your heart towards someone because of something tied to their ethnicity or your perception of them because of it? In church, I'm talking about black or white or any other race. Turn with me to Matthew 5, 21 through 22, if you would. I think it talks about it here. Matthew 5, 21 through 22 the words of Christ. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty head or name calling, slandering, they shall be in danger of the council, which is another way of saying judgment here. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Those are the words of Christ. Don't get this wrong. Control your anger, watch your hearts so you don't fall prey to this in any way. Let me stress this to you. This is very much not a one-sided thing. We're all trying to figure this out. It is a sin to falsely accuse your brother or sister of the real sin of ethnic superiority or racism, just as it is a sin for the one who truly believes that they are superior because of their race. And that's the same for any viewpoint or action or any distinction that you might make because people are different and God's creative. All of these things devalue the human being made in the image of God equally let me be clear here, all are abhorrent before the almighty God, all of them. 
Now let us be examples of compassion and unity on this subject, church, for the only ones who really can. We also see man's dignity here when it comes to age too. Our world is very, very backwards on this. You might not realize it. Man being made in the image of God, it's something inherent. It's not earned. This truth is from the very beginning of life till the end. And the horror that is abortion is an affront to God. I'm just going to say it clearly. I don't want to blunt the truth here, but I do want to make sure that you know that there is forgiveness here too. There have been so many who have been so gravely and grievously affected by the lies in our culture today who've been convinced of something so sad and atrocious. And if that's you today, or if that's you listening later to this online or wherever, I want you to hear that there is forgiveness. Do not be ashamed for the new creation that God has made you. But I do want to talk about abortion today because I think it's pertinent to our subject. If you wonder why I mention this, because it seems like the science is kind of settled or maybe it's not that big of a deal, let me tell you that it is. Do you know how many children are lost to abortion? 3,000. Think about that. 3,000 people gone. Do you know, some of us are old enough to remember 9-11 when it happened. We're going to be remembering that here soon, this upcoming week. Do you remember how our whole nation grieved this attack? Do you remember what the count of the dead was? Do you remember how we started wars that we are still going to today because of it? It was 3,000. 3,000 people died that day. And here we are with 3,000 babies, church. And that's per day. That's over 1 million babies per year. And that is only in the U.S., on August 25th, the world meter for abortions hit 27,733,000 and some odd hundred number that I couldn't write because it was counting up at a rate of about three per second. What's so sad to me is so many of those lives are thrown away because someone didn't want to raise a kid with special needs or they lived in a culture where they only wanted a son to carry on the family name or they just didn't think that they could handle it. So sad. And if you are listening here or somewhere else, please don't do that. Please see how precious that sweet little life is. There are so many people who would love to adopt your baby. There are so many people who would love to help you. Church, we can't stand for such things to continue in our world. We must fight for these children. Along with that, we have to fight for the widows and the orphans as well, which many times drive this issue because they have nowhere to go. 
James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God describes in Psalm 68.5, he's described in Psalm 68.5 as the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows. If we are to be like God, we ought to be that way, right? God cares about these people. It means that rightly valuing the image of God means caring for them as well, helping them, helping people in adoption and foster care, supporting them financially or doing it ourselves. It means we take care of these people, all of them. Our next application today, let's move on is to see every man in his proper place. We need to see that God is actually above man. If we follow the things that we just talked about, devalue the image of God, this is when we value it too highly, right? That's the opposite issue. We have this tendency in ourselves to elevate ourselves or other human beings above God. We see this much like they did in the Old Testament with their gods, They were just these superhumans. They couldn't imagine something greater than a human being. We see this today in our own culture, and we call it humanism, and it's the backbone of our society. Humanism says that man can achieve anything. Don't buy into this idea that man can achieve anything. All we need is to educate ourselves or advance our technology or whatever that may be. This is a lie, You cannot become anything you want. You certainly can't be God. We fall into the problem of trying to do that sometimes. Seeing man in his proper place means admitting that the image of God is also marred in us. Yes, we all have it, and that's all full. We've been speaking about how man is superior all this time to the rest of creation how we ought to act. And this truth is beautiful that God has imparted this on us. But that image has also been damaged by our sin. It's precisely because of that that we struggle with all these other things. We struggle to see the dignity in others and we see ourselves in the right place in creation. We struggle with that. So what do we do? Where do we go from there? We have to strive to display the image of God well. That's our third application. And we can sum that up in three different ways. Many of these things we've already kind of talked about on the way. We should strive to display the image of God well in how we treat each other. That includes the sexism and the racism and abortion and caring for orphans and widows and anyone else. It's how we treat each other we need to strive We should strive to display the image of God well in how we steward the creation. And we'll learn even more about this a little later in our series. We're to use it, not abuse it. We are to redeem and create culture, cultures that reflect the glory of who God is as good rulers. And finally, we strive to display the image of God well in how we respond to him. We have to see ourselves in the right order of creation And ultimately, this leads us into our final application. We need to seek the perfect image bearer. 
See, Colossians 1.15 says, he, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which is not to say that he was the first thing created, but that he is the rightful ruler over all creation, including us. See, Jesus is the perfect image of God. He sees every human being with the dignity that they deserve, the dignity that's demanded. He sees every human being in their proper place. He never gets that out of order. As the only man who never sinned, he perfectly obeys God's rule. How could a man do that? Well, John 1 tells us it's because he is the creator king. See, God did this amazing miracle where he came in the flesh to do what we could not. God gave us a role and we couldn't do it. And so Jesus came and he did it for us. He broke into his own kingdom to save it from the way that we had destroyed it. We have to look to him as the perfect image bearer for us on our behalf. See, just as we share a common image that gives us great dignity, we all share a common sin nature too through our father Adam. And this leaves that beautiful image tainted in every way. But God himself came as the man Jesus Christ who was born of a virgin. And he did not share that same sin nature. And Jesus, he perfectly obeyed his heavenly father as we could not, as Adam could not, as we've all failed to do. And he died as payment for all of the ways that we failed to represent him and all of the ways that we have marred that image with sin. He died on the cross and made a way for God to restore his creation. And the good news, folks, of the gospel is it does not stop at the fact that Christ died for our sins but also that God is restoring all things to himself, including us, including that broken image. One day, those who trust in Christ's death are sufficient for that. We trust that we cannot save ourselves. We are wholly dependent on him, the perfect image of God. We will be transformed into his likeness, no more fighting for it, the image of God perfected in us. That is the hope of glory that we have one day, church. He will make us free of that sin. But without him, we are left in our sin to be punished forever. But thanks be to God that he made a way for us to be restored. Thanks be to God that we can work even now to reflect his image Thanks be to God that we can see each other rightly according to the image of God, even today. Even though imperfectly, we can do that today. Church, he did make a way by his death on the cross, and we celebrate that today.